0: Welcome back to the True Crime Guys Podcast. I'm Lauren, And I'm Michael. All right. How's everybody doing on this fine spring day? We got another heist episode for you. I don't know if we, we're going to name this one. a part of the heist series. Uh, much different type of heist, though. It's not... Uh, they, they weren't doing it for money. They weren't doing it for recognition. No. They were doing it to expose our intelligence agencies, uh, namely the FBI yeah. back in 1971, who were really doing some pretty... Um, evil clandestine shit really trying to uh, um, stop people's first amendment rights um, yes. trying to stop people from speaking their mind and, and you know being anti-war and, and a lot of things that uh, you know democracies made up they were trying to stop that and so these, these people exposed them
1: and they were they were trying to divide wedges in society in such mm-hmm. in such particular ways that I found very interesting yeah very interesting
0: so we did watch a documentary called 1971. You can find it on YouTube. I rented it on there. Michael found a free version on YouTube. So yeah, there you go. one way or another, you know, you can find it to watch on there. And I think it's also on like Amazon Prime and whatnot, but um, very well done. Very enjoyable. They had uh, the people from this actual heist who came out like 40 years after it happened.
1: That's the beauty Spoiler, of it. Spoiler, they
0: got away with it. Unlike many other uh, whistleblowers and people that expose government agencies, they actually got away with it and only came out uh because they they wanted to 40 years later now they're really old and there's the statue of limitations has run up so they can't be charged for these crimes anymore right right um so yeah they came out and uh they were they were featured in the documentary there's been a book written about them and about this heist and so yeah we'll we'll talk about that and and go over the whole heist it uh it wasn't quite Oceans Eleven. It was no, a little it, was not. it really all they used was a lockpick and some suitcases, but right. made away with like ten thousand documents from the FBI, one of the FBI headquarters. Right. So far more important.
1: Far more important than Oceans Eleven, but yeah, not as uh not as Hollywood, not as flashy of a heist. Not like uh right. what was it, Spat Spaggiari, Albert Spaggiari, the uh oh, the yeah, Heistman, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, he was more of a right. showboat type heist. But these people didn't, like we said before, these people didn't do any of this for personal gain. They had everything to lose. It's like. Yeah,
0: obviously, because they, they, they stayed in shadows for the next 40 years. They, that's, yes. that's how little, little they cared about the recognition. They just wanted the results yes. of you know, the FBI and CIA, them having a little bit more scrutiny as far as what they're allowed to get away with.
1: Right. But man, just the stress of having to live that way, always looking over your shoulder for the FBI. And you know, the FBI is everywhere because. You just uncovered that information.
0: <laughs> I'm sure they relaxed after the five year statute of limitations. You know, they were like, "Yeah, I still don't really want it, it, them to, to know who I am because who knows what the Fed will try to dig up on me and right. arrest me for, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though they can't charge me for this one. They could find something to get me with." So, oh, I'm sure. You know, but yeah. And and uh I can think of at least one couple in this that were a part of this heist. They had a lot to lose cuz they had three children. They did. And so they were taking a huge risk being a part of this. Absolutely. But let's not give the whole story away. Yeah, let's let's talk doing? about that after your intro.
2: All right. So at that time uh we had just within a few years gone through uh the sort of peak of the civil rights movement um and Many of the laws like the Voting Rights Act had been passed some years before, but the reality of uh, racial justice was still far from complete. Um, There were, uh, the war in Vietnam was raging at that point in time. Um, And so there were many, many people uh, who were working for change in those areas in particular. There were four students killed at Kent State and two more killed at, uh, at Jackson State. And uh, that really pushed me over the edge that it was, it was time to do more than just, uh, than just protest and just march with a sign. We do not believe that nonviolence is dead and that we don't believe in interposing one form of violence for another. And that we believe that an action like this will still speak to our fellow Americans and bring home to them that a decent society is still possible, but it's, it's totally impossible if these files and what they represent are preserved and honored and even defended as those poor women tried to. That was a very dramatic moment for all of us, I believe. <clears throat> um, it took civil disobedience to another level and uh, really brought us clearly to an- another level of protest against the war in Vietnam. J. Edgar Hoover's FBI was all over the civil rights movement with infiltrators uh, and uh, uh, surveillance, intense surveillance, uh, and, uh, and people that would report back on meetings and so on. And of course we all know that J. Edgar Hoover and his FBI went after Martin Luther King, tried to uh, discredit him. Indeed, even sent him a note suggesting that because of his activities uh, with other women besides his wife, he now had no option but to commit suicide. That note was sent to Dr. King, suggesting, and it was from the FBI, suggesting that Dr. King commit suicide.
0: Alright, our case this week is the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI. Ooh. And this was actually a suggestion from a Patreon member. Uh, we got the suggestion during a Just a Banter episode. Uh, thank you to Aaron, Patreon member, who suggested this case. We were unaware of it. I don't think it's well known enough. You know, the it kind of should be lumped in there with the famous whistleblowers. You know, like WikiLeaks, yes, the Pentagon Papers, Edward Snowden. It should be in that same conversation. And really, they were the first major case of this of exposing a uh, central Int- intelligence agency or the FBI, you know, it, our, our intelligence agencies that play a big role in our everyday life.
1: Absolutely. As far as their
0: surveillance of us, especially in, in modern times following 9-11. And
1: I was a little bit ashamed that I didn't know about this case, to be honest. I'm like, wow, this is really important shit. This is a really important yeah. part of our history. I mean, I get why it's been kicked to the side, for obvious reasons, uh, which you guys mm. will find out. But it still was very surprising. I was I was kind of disappointed that I didn't know about this. Um to me, it's it's that important through history. So,
0: if you don't know, you'll know by the end of this. But uh, yeah, we watched as we mentioned the, the film documentary "1971," which was made in in 2014 when a lot of stuff came to light. In 2014, the members of the uh, the the group, the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI, a group of eight people, um, they came. They several of them, not all of them. One of them, uh, the leader of it, had unfortunately died the year prior in 2013. But several of them were tracked down by a reporter, and they finally decided it was time that they could come out and talk about it, and a book was written. Um, and so, yeah, it's, a, lot has, a lot more has come to light in 2014. A lot of stuff broke, and that's when this documentary was made. Um, and the book was called The Burglary, um, The Discovery of J. Hoover, uh, J. Edgar Hoover's Secret FBI, and it would be written by a reporter. That uh, is important. Played an important role, very important role in this. Yes. She was the only one that was willing to publish the stuff that was stolen from the FBI by the Citizens Commission. Right.
1: That's journalist uh, Betty Metzger.
0: Yeah, and we'll talk more about her. We'll get into all of that. Um. So yeah, uh, you've probably heard. I'm sure you've. Everyone's heard of Edward Snowden. Oh, Edward who? Um, Edward Snowden. Yeah, exactly. Possibly the most <laughs> famous whistleblower in history. Not but out. twelve years before he was born, way back in 1971 a group of 8 people pulled off a bold heist much like snowden they had one goal in mind and it wasn't money or recognition it was exposing government funded control and corruption um, however unlike snowden um, they they got away with it they and did. they got away with it for you know over 43 years well they, to this I was about day i say they, they got away with it for their, their whole lives
1: now they yeah, got away with but it but i
0: mean they got away and no one knew who it was for over 43 years yeah which is amazing that no one talked it's it's Truly amazing. It really is. But that I mean, a group of eight people like that. You know, you know they had to have told a select few people, you know, and the mo- it branches out and it becomes a spider web. And the next thing you know, you know, that's how you get caught. Yeah. You just you well, tell one person, they tell one person, and it's just Well, you
1: know that one of the one of the people's children that was involved ended up telling a friend. You know yeah, what I mean? What I I'm mean, nothing came of it. That's why I, I don't mind saying it now. Nothing came of it, but it's just yeah. I'm just saying that's like like you're saying, there's one more spider web that could have took place and led them back to Back to uh, <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think following the statute of limitations, I think it gets to the point yeah. where it had been 20, 30 years, and they're like, you know what? If people find out at this point, then they find out. It's not that big of a deal anymore. That's right. You can finally exhale. <laughs> yeah. So seven of the eight who could be found agreed to be interviewed by journalist Betty Metzger, who was writing a nonfiction book uh, on the event called The Burglary. Um, and so this whole thing, it started way back in 1970. There was obviously a lot of... Uh, division going on in our country. There was a lot of, um, there was a whole peace movement going on. There was an anti-war movement yep. with the Vietnam Anti-draft. War going on. Right. Anti-draft movement, big time. And there was a group, of course, civil that rights, kind of spawned, a, yeah, spawned the idea for this heist within the, the leader when he heard about uh, this. This dude, Bill Davidon, who we'll talk a lot about, he heard about the Flower City Conspiracy, which was another group of people who had done something similar to what this group did. Mm-hmm. On September 6, 1970, the offices of the Selective Service, FBI, and the U.S. Attorney were ransacked during the early hours of Sunday morning. The eight young people involved identified themselves as the Flower City Conspiracy, and the FBI knew of their plans long before the break-in. Detailed information coming from an existing wiretap on one of the members, all eight members of the conspiracy were convicted. So they went in there to destroy a bunch of draft cards. Um, Obviously, people were being drafted left and right to go fight in Vietnam, a war that many uh, in our society viewed as reckless and um, something we shouldn't have been involved in in the first place, and a lot of um, young people were dying because of it. Yes, they were. Um, So whether you believe in it or not, um, there was obviously a big movement against it, and the Flower City conspiracy opened the eyes of Bill Davidon, who was a professor of physics at Harvard College, Haverford College, sorry. It's quite different. Yeah, a little bit. Um, (laughs) When you see it, though, you just immediately go Yeah,
1: not that different in the timeline, no, but... Right, yeah, right, right, yeah. right.
0: <clears throat> so, Bill Davidon was a professor of physics at Haverford College and a fixture of anti-war protests in Philadelphia. He saw what the Flower City Conspiracy Group and uh, had done, and figured he could do it better. If you could break into uh, the Selective Service FBI offices, right, and and just destroy draft cards, um, then you know he figured we could
1: break in and steal documents and expose them. Right. I think the Flower City Conspiracy was that nudge that they needed. They were like, "Holy shit! Yes. Like you can actually get into one of these." places you can Mm -hmm. actually get in you would think that it would just be 24-hour security you know armed guards at every entrance every window but apparently not in the 70s it's well it
0: depended i mean because they had they had these little substations if you will they had little offices kind of all over the country true true they had main headquarters like they had a main headquarters the fbi did in philadelphia and you weren't getting into that one they realized that pretty quickly that that one was 24-hour surveillance security the works so yeah, as we mentioned, Bill Davidon he he saw this as an opportunity. He figured you know he could do this, and rather than just destroying you know draft paperwork and whatnot and trying to prevent people from being drafted in the war, they could they could actually try and break into the FBI offices and expose information. They knew they knew that there was a lot of fishy stuff going yeah. on. They knew that it went at these gatherings, these anti-war protests that they were doing, that there was a lot of. Uh, there was a lot of informants. There was a lot of ag- agitators that were among them that were members of the FBI or people that the FBI had right. hired to go in and and kind of spoil their. It was movement, so funny, and they wanted to expose. It was so this.
1: interesting the way that they said that they could pick the FBI agents out. They said that they were uh, what they call oh, them wait. like hippies in progress or something like that. <laughs> They were like combat boots, yeah. And, yeah, and they were like just starting. They were like saying, "Kill the pigs," and right, all this stuff. And they were just starting to grow stubble, and their hair was just slightly long. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just love, I just love those descriptions. Yeah, right. They didn't have that twenty-year hippie right. commitment, you know, with the full. Yeah, beard. you're not all about it, man. I can tell. Look how short your hair is. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So. uh Bill Davidon, um, he, he saw that uh, th- this, there was an opportunity here, and he decided it was time to um, put together a group of people. Um, Philadelphia, by the early 1970s, had become an epicenter of the peace movement, and Bill was frustrated that years of organized demonstrations seemed to have little, had little impact. He and other activists like himself had also noticed an influx of FBI informants and agitators in their midst. Uh, they believed that the FBI was spending countless dollars and time trying to divide and discredit their movement. Um, So he believed the only way to prove the Bureau was engaged in unconstitutional surveillance against anti-war activists was to break into an FBI office and steal the incriminating records and and then basically give them to um, journalists and to politicians and hopefully somebody would publish this to the public so that everyone would see. Because at this time, this was a time where uh, there was very little uh, distrust in our federal agencies, the FBI, the CIA, they, they were very well trusted. Yeah, they were. At this time, there was like a, even a famous show that, was, that had been running for like t- 10 years up until 1970 called the FBI. I think it was, at least the documentary talked about it and showed a, a clip of this cheesy show. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: basically like a, oh. like a crime detective show. It was like two FBI agents solving crime. I've right. seen them uh, put like four rounds into a guy's chest at like from five feet away. He had a little package yeah, bomb. still like flopping around. <laughs> and then they're both like looking at the yeah. bomb and the guy's like, do it. Like, do what, bro? I don't know about like he just pulls a wire off. Like, insane. (laughs) But you know what's what's crazy about this whole case, man? When they decided like this is a great plan, right? You believe that the FBI is hiding things, and you're like, all we need to do to prove to everybody is just go into an office and steal incriminating records. But how did you know that office had incriminating records? Like you took the biggest one of the, the biggest gamble of your life on like breaking into this office in hopes, mm-hmm. in hopes that you find incriminating things. Yes, they did. I think
0: they just had a hunch that there was just, there was so much of it everywhere with the FBI because they were just so yeah bold and no one was doing any kind of uh, checks and balances as far as they they just had the kind of like unchecked power. Yeah. And they, they knew, they just knew. They knew if they could get their hands on enough files, no matter which office it was, that there would be incriminating stuff in there. They just knew yeah. it. That makes sense. Um, and, and look, I'm... I think we should make it clear here. FBI, do, I think, does vastly more good than bad, and maybe I'm naive in that. But I th- I'd like to think they do a lot more stopping of, you know, things that could harm the general public right. than. And we won't know. We won't know the good that they do most of the time because it's it's classified information. Mm-hmm. Um, same with the CIA. I, th- I do think they're stopping a lot of terrorism on a regular basis, whether it's domestic or overseas terrorism. You know, um, but also there has to be you can't have unchecked power. They can't be doing... They can't be um, completely uh, in the face of the Constitution just surveilling us for no reason or infiltrating groups that aren't doing any harm. Yeah. You know, Or agitating the situation. These anti-war protesters, they're allowed to voice their opinions and, and for them to... Um, send in people to try and agitate those groups and discredit them and things like that that's just not what they're supposed to be doing you not know? only
1: that it's like why are they doing it why is that so important to them lauren you know that's the that's the scary part why is it yeah. so important that you have to cause all this division constantly that you'll send out these agents undercover multiple ones into big cities
2: mm-hmm.
1: i don't know yeah
0: yeah. So in the summer of 1970, months after President Nixon was announced, uh, announced the United States invasion of Cambodia, um, Bill Davidon began assembling a team from a group of activists whose commitment and discretion he had come to trust. So this group of people that he knew for sure were not federal agents or informants they had been in it for so long and they were so committed that he knew he could trust them. um, and it and it was a group of nine initially, and it would ultimately be eight that would see it through. One person would back out, and make them very nervous, because by the time that this this member backed out, he already knew every bit of the plan, and uh, he could completely basically lock them away forever if he if he ratted to the to the Fed. So oh yeah, he got last minute. He made them very nervous.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. But nonetheless, they went forward. Um, so let's talk about some of the the notable members of this group. Um, John and Bonnie Rains, who were actually a married couple and had three children at the time, this is the couple we were alluding to earlier that had a lot to lose. Obviously, right. having young children, and they actually had to um, talk to—I think it was—was was it John's brother? It, yes. They had to basically set up a set up a, a backup plan in case they were, in fact, uh, locked so, up for the rest of their lives. So over you know, this. that's
1: two more people that were implemented in this plan. You know, I thought yep. about that later. I was like, oh mm. damn, they know—they knew too. So they had to carry that burden.
0: Maybe they kept it vague. Maybe they just said, hey, mm. we're doing something. Yeah. We're not going to tell you what it is, but we could end up being locked away for a long time, and are you willing to take care of our kids if that right, happens? Right,
1: But still, though, knowing Give that- plausible deniability. But still, even having to tell them that, and then knowing how th- the crime is perceived to the public later through the media, that was even sketchy. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Any loose ends were with a crime of this caliber. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so this this the, the Rainies, um Let's talk about John John Rainey. Um, he had been a freedom rider and was on the famous bus ride in 1961, um, fighting against segregation. This bus that was burned, uh, they drove through the South and they were basically using like whites only bathrooms and things like that, and they faced a lot of violence over that. The bus they were in was burned. They were badly beaten. The members that rode on this bus together, he was on that yeah. bus um and at the time that he joined this group uh to do this this heist he was a professor of religion at the te- at Temple University um and uh he had a quote in the documentary he said i was ready to make a transition from nonviolent protest to nonviolent disruption and he said it, he wanted to damage the war machine that was his goal
1: <laughs> it's a pretty badass quote and his
0: <laughs> yeah and him and his wife were badass yeah, man were. his wife his wife was was Beautiful and uh, very intelligent and um, remains remains uh, politically active to this day. Yeah, they uh, both do. Uh, well man. into probably your 70s now. I don't know.
1: That's that's awesome. They both do. And, you know, I love what they said. They said that we couldn't let the fact that we're parents just let us shift the responsibility that we had or that we felt onto somebody else.
0: Yeah, they felt like it was Damn. a cop-out for them to to bow out of it just because they were parents. Yeah.
1: Man, that hits hard, man. There's yeah. like there's like people that like don't go out to dinner because they have kids. You know what I'm saying?
0: <laughs> their kids are now their kids are now adults and they <laughs> talked in the documentary about how they had a little bit of resentment when they found this out years later. They were like, you know, what if they had been put in prison? What would my life have been like if I was raised by my uncle instead of my parents? You know, like we definitely had some resentment for a while, but now we we understand yeah. it.
1: Yeah, you know, get over that, kids. Your parents are heroes. What have coulda, shoulda. You know what I'm saying? It worked out good. Damn. <laughs> no, right. but I, I understand that. I can see how they could look at it yeah. later.
0: Yeah. And so another notable member was Keith Forsythe. Forsyth. Um, this, this part's funny to me because it's kind of like a so cliche movie. Uh, You you know, you got like your demolitions guy. You got your lock yeah. picker. This is, Keith was the lock picker. He was... He 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 had mechanical skills and he was a young young activist with not much to lose and so um, he was chosen he was chosen to be a part of the group and he began to get to work he actually took like classes on I don't know how he, in 1970 you take classes on lock picking but he he educated himself on it and he had like this little board with a bunch of different types of locks Dude. and he would just work while they were doing their game plan for this heist he would just sit there and pick locks all Dude, night In
1: 1970 man they probably had lock picking class in school they used to do all kinds of crazy shit yeah, in school right. back then, man. <laughs> the stuff my dad tells me about, the stuff they used to do, I'm like, what? <sighs> right. I guess they realized they were teaching p- kids too much. <laughs> like, we got to dumb this right. down a little bit. Keep them into the reading. <laughs> Give them more yeah. math.
0: Yeah, my dad said he passed. There was a class that he had a senior year that he he had a deal with his teacher that he didn't have to show up for like the entire uh, semester, but basically at the end of the semester he had to bring him uh, a bottle of whiskey or something along those lines. Wow. He had to bring him liquor. The guys preferred liquor, and he would pass him. Well,
1: so. there you go, two birds, one stone,
0: right there. He's probably like a shop. There's teacher. a lot of that going on back in the day. Kids got kids also got uh, paddled and hit with the rulers and all that stuff, from what I've heard. Oh yeah,
1: that definitely happened. That yeah, that was mm-hmm. that was definitely common practice.
0: <laughs> yep. So a few more members. We had Robert Williamson, who was uh, the recruiter of the group and an informal leader as well. And you had Judy Feingold and Ralph Daniel, who came out last. They would later come clean as being members of the group, um, as well as two members that came out under alias names. So, yeah, I don't see any real benefit to to coming out. Um, you could come, like, I understand the two that came out with alias names. It's like, yeah, we'll talk, but our name doesn't need to be made yeah, public. exactly.
1: Exactly. I agree with that 100%, because, yeah, you may be out of the FBI's eye, but you still... Who knows what you still have in your possession? Like if you're part of that heist, you know the FBI's got to be thinking. Mm-hmm. Well, they had thousands and thousands of pages; only some of it yeah. surfaced. Like, wh- where's the rest? Where? Who has it? Right. I mean, and you have to keep yeah. some, right? You have to keep some mm-hmm. something <laughs> hidden underneath your floorboards or something. Ugh. Yeah, some proof, yeah. right? Look, this is an original document. Exactly, got to have something. <clears throat> yep.
0: So the group was meeting uh, every night. They would actually meet at the Rainey's home, you know. So they, they said it was weird, like we'd have these clandestine meetings, and it was in this family home. There's like kids, and Bonnie's making spaghetti and meatballs, and they're they're in the <laughs> right. basement planning out this raid of the FBI office.
1: That <laughs> <laughs> that's how they stayed underneath. Man, everybody thought that was just a typical dinner party, you know, yep. just some friends hanging out. That's really how they flew under the radar. Yeah. I think it really helped. If they all, if any of them had like high profile positions, it, it wouldn't have worked. I really don't think so. Yeah,
0: so the group concluded that it would be too risky to try and break into the FBI office in downtown Pennsylvania. That was like the main building, the right. main FBI building in, in PA, and it was tightly, uh, tightly secured, 24 hours, um, the works. Security was, was very tight and intense there. So they, they started looking around, and they realized that there was these little satellite offices all over, and there was actually one in Media, Pennsylvania, um, and it was actually just like one little single office in a, an apartment building on the third floor of an apartment building across the street from the county courthouse. Hmm. And so that when they just – they started surveilling this building, and it was just an apartment building. So you could walk in and out the front doors and, and go up to the FBI office. Right. And there was just a normal – you know, the first time they looked, there was just a normal lock on the door. Um, still, they couldn't be certain um, – whether the office would have documents about the FBI's surveillance of ward protesters or whether there was an alarm system in the right. office. So they spent months casing the building, driving past it at all times of night and memorizing the routines of its residents. Quote, we knew when people came home from work, when their lights went out, when they went to bed, when they woke up in the morning, said John Raines. We were quite certain that we understood the nightly activities in and out of that building. So they, they, spent, very, they spent months um, doing their due they diligence did. and really mapping out a plan here, they had drawn up maps, um, and yeah, they, and they even ended up send, sending in Bonnie uh, to get a little bit more intel on the office itself. So um, it wasn't until Bonnie Ra- Rains got inside the office that the group grew confident that it could uh, that it didn't have a security system and that it did in fact have file cabinets filled with you know uh, potentially. Confidential information that they would love to expose. So this was a great weeks before the burglary. Yeah, this is this is very movie esque right here. They send in Bonnie, um, you know, under disguise as a college student weeks before the burglary. She visited the office posing as a Swarthmore College student researching job opportunities for women at the FBI. So they dolled her up. You know, she already Mm -hmm. looked young. She already looked younger than she was. So they put her in some big glasses um, and like put you know would they have like a scarf on her and just kind of made her look like a college student whatever a 1970s college student looks like. And she like. was
1: uh, 29 at this time.
0: But easily could have
1: passed for like 23. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think in the, in the original uh, description that's given later of her, they said 25. They guessed 25. But when she showed up, oh, they yeah, for yeah. sure thought she was 18, 19. Like, you know, young. Because mm-hmm. they wouldn't have known otherwise. They just put that 25 out there later because they're thinking she's got to be at least 25.
0: Yeah, so she actually went to the went to this apartment building, went up to the third floor where the FBI office, and she had scheduled a meeting with uh, the agent that was that was at the office um, for her to sit down and do this interview. You know, on what it's like for what kind of opportunities there were in the FBI for women these days. And she actually sat down with the in the office for half an hour with this agent and got a good look around the place and pretended to be writing down information like she gave it right. to. And when if the part I liked is when she got up, she made it point to act like she accidentally got lost. She went, you know, down kind of the hallway of this office instead of out, like right for the front door yeah. of it. And uh, she got a look that there was another door. She found out that there was, in fact, two doors. There was another door that led to the hallway ah. uh, on the third right. floor. And this would come to be very, very vital information because. Uh, they were kind of thrown for a loop on the night of the heist when they found out that there was a different lock on the door than there there had been prior, and it was not pickable.
1: So. Do you think they? Uh, you think that was just out of paranoia? They changed it after her visit, like just in case.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It is weird, yeah. right? It's weird that they chose to change mm-hmm. it. So the group were all set. They were convinced that they could make this. They could make this work, and they picked a specific night, which they thought might give them an extra advantage. The Advantage of Distraction. They chose Monday, March 8th, 1971, which happened to be the night of the fight of the century between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. The fight was widely regarded as the biggest boxing match in history and arguably the single most anticipated and hyped sporting event ever. It was the first time ever that two undefeated boxers has fought each other for the heavyweight title. This was a massive deal. The world was going to be watching this fight.
1: Oh, yeah, no doubt, including the guards at the FBI office.
0: (laughs) Yes, that's what they were hoping for
1: that's what they were hoping for
0: the bout the uh, the boxing match brought a broad appeal for many Americans including non-boxing and sport fans um ali had become a symbol for the left. that's the kind of the irony of this too is it was a very politically charged fight cuz you had on the on opposite ends of the spectrum with the two boxers you had ali who was a symbol for the left wing anti-establishment movement he obviously um refused to go to he he i think i think he either, like burned his draft card or something he refused to go to vietnam even though he was drafted and he actually spent time in jail and lost like a valuable time of his fight right. career over it and then you had frazier who had been adopted by a conservative pro-war movement um so they were on opposite ends uh idealistically uh as well it was just perfect so man. it's kind of ir- ironic that they chose that night for that reason as well I can't believe- however frazier w- would win the fight in a 15 round unanimous decision Um, But it was the first of a trilogy, followed by two rematches, both won by Muhammad Ali. So
1: yeah, but there's like conspiracies around those two fights as well. There's yeah, there's a lot of shit around those, especially that which ones the rematches. uh, I think especially the the final one, the whole trilogy. Frazier through through the match. Mm. You know, because if you fight once, right, and one guy wins, it only makes sense let the other guy win the next time, right? Now, now it's one on one. Now we got to have a tiebreaker, and who better than the the fighter of the people, Ali? Let the people have this, right? Let them feel like they won this because this doesn't matter to their rights or to their freedoms. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I may it may just be. Yeah, I'm not. I'm
0: not basic. a big uh, boxing history aficionado. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm Okay. Yeah, that that's just too far back. I I do, I do definitely remember watching like Mike Tyson in the '90s and stuff. Right, right, but yeah, I, do. right. I don't go back and watch those old '70s boxing matches too I often. Got you.
1: Yeah, me either. So, <laughs> but I'm just talking about. Yeah, just,
0: nonetheless, just, while the world was watching this this much anticipated boxing match, Keith Forsythe made his way unabated to the FBI office on the third floor of the apartment building, um, attempting to gain entry. Um, he he had it, you know. He had it in his mind that it was going to be no problem to pick that lock. It was just a matter of getting to the office door without being seen. Um, and once he got there, he realized that he was sadly mistaken that they had changed the lock. Upon arriving, arriving at room two hundred three, which was the FBI office, he discovered that the FBI had installed a lock on the main door that he could not pick. It was a circular keyhole, much like you see on a bike lock—a circle with a little yep. line on top. Looks like, um, like a little power symbol. Um, and that's. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, after calling Bill Davidon uh, Davidon from a payphone with the bad news, so he he kind of like was like, "Shit, this ain't gonna work." And he ran down to a payphone and called the boss, Bill, the master the master planner of this whole scheme, and, and let him know the bad news. They decided that uh, you know they would talk to Bonnie because she she was there in the office, and they, she told him, you know what, there was another door in that office that she spotted when she pretended like she got lost, right. and. Um, the door was on that same floor. So I'm picturing like a hotel floor. You know, you got doors on each yeah. side. And I think that there was two doors next to each other. And you wouldn't think that the other door was part of the same office, but it connected. And they had like a file cabinet in front of this other door. It was blocked by uh, a file cabinet, but she could tell that there was a right. door there.
1: But it was locked and as well. So she, but it didn't have one of these updates. Yes, locks.
0: it was locked, but it didn't, have the, it didn't have the circular lock. It just had a normal right. keyhole. right. Yeah, so Keith went back up, went to the other door. Uh, picked it and began to try and open the door and he discovered that there was actually a deadbolt on it as Some well. Page. And the deadbolt was locked. <laughs> so he then resorted to using a crowbar um, to pry the door open and then he had the file cabinet in front of the door as well. So he had to nudge little by little and he actually said, at least the documentary would lead you to believe that there, he, the boxing match was being listened to um, by uh, like the building's... Uh, the manager. What would they say it was? So like like the, the maintenance manager. The manager of the yeah. building? Yeah, he was below, on the floor below, listening loudly to the, so loud on the TV that he could actually hear the boxing match going on, and he timed pushing uh, his pry and breaking the door open. He he timed it to where there was, like, the crowd going crazy on the TV. I don't know if that was just kind of played up to make it a little bit more interesting for the documentary I don't know. Or I feel what, like but, that's
1: kind of common sense if you're in that situation.
0: Well, of course, but it just, man, it's just almost too perfect, well, right?
1: it is. But this dude... Gotta give this guy some credit. He's got some damn balls of seal to sit there in an FBI office that long, prying that door open. Yeah. I mean, five minutes. That's Yeah, an because eternity. if he had
0: just pushed really hard, he would have knocked the file cabinet right. over, making a huge crashing sound, and for sure blowing their cover. You
1: know that must have felt like an eternity, man. And you know it. Yeah, he's just
0: nudging inch by inch until he could squeeze yes. through.
1: Oh my god, it's nerve wracking as hell. He said, "He said, yeah, it was it was it was a tense situation." I was like, "Yeah, right." You're fucking sweating bullets when you got out there. <laughs> I know it. Right.
0: Yeah. So he, he finally did squeeze his way through. He unlocked the main door to the office and gave word to the group who arrived with a bunch of... I think they had like 10 suitcases. They were each carrying like two in each yeah. hand. Um, quote, I knew we'd find things in that office that were not not only immoral, but probably illegal, said Keith Forsyth. So they they gain entry. There's I think there was two big file cabinets. And after packaging up the documents into suitcases... They piled into getaway cars and rendezvoused at a farmhouse to sort through what they had stolen. And this is party time. They've they yes. pulled it off, and now they get that just that's like Christmas times ten. Like what do we have? I here? Know. You know you're opening those suitcases and going you through the stuff. Like, all holy night, holy shit! What do we freaking got? Looking through that shit. Yeah, and they're having moments where like one of them will just yell out like, "Holy shit! You got to see this!" Yeah,
1: <laughs> often. Yeah
0: yeah, and to their relief, they soon discovered that the bulk of it was hard evidence of the FBI spying on political groups, um, things that uh, that went beyond their scopes of what they were supposed to do be able to do, according to the Constitution, you know, like First Amendment, they were breaking many First Amendment laws and things right. like that. Um, identifying themselves as the citizens Commission to investigate the FBI, the burglars sent select documents to several newspaper reporters and politicians, most of which being afraid of the FBI, Hand delivered the documents back to the FBI headquarters. They were almost, they almost did this all for nothing. Honestly, there was only one reporter that they sent this to. They sent it to like, I think they sent it to five different people that were either heads of, they were either high up in a, um, in like newspaper companies, uh, like the New York Times and the Washington Post, things like that. They were high up, uh, reporters there. They were sending these to, or even politicians. And only one actually, uh, decided it would be okay to to publish these or had the balls to do it or
1: felt like they had the responsibility maybe
0: yeah betty metzger betty metzger at the washington post uh who worked at the washington post at the time was one of the five people selected by the group to receive the files and she was the only recipient who did not return the files back to the fbi there was a lot of fear of the fbi even um like the president you know during this time the fbi had so much power they 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 were almost like a mob. Like <laughs> they, even like high up ranking members of of, uh, of the government at the time were afraid of the FBI.
1: Yeah. They were scary. They were mysterious.
0: Yeah, if the president tried to do anything to diminish the FBI's power, they would just dig up some dirt on him. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I like that
1: shit or have him assassinated. Right? Yeah, exactly. God. But yeah, after uh this article was posted though, then other newspapers were like, Oh, okay, she's already did it. So like we can yeah, 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 do it yeah. now. Right. It'd be a shame. Like mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's already happened. It'd
0: be ashamed to miss out on these these uh, you know I, I would say ratings or whatever they they would use to measure their success yeah. back in the day, newspaper sales newspaper or whatever sales. it was.
1: Yeah, that's going through the roof. Yeah.
0: yeah, so it was the first time a journalist received secret government files from people outside of the government, as opposed to whistleblowers who had stolen the files. So yeah, this is this is not a, an insider, you know, turning against the organization they work for. This is people who'd actually broken in and stolen these files firsthand. Man. Um so two weeks after the burglary, Miss Metzger wrote the first article based on the files after the Nixon administration tried to unsuccessfully get the post to return the documents. So she said, no, I think I'm gonna go ahead and publish them. <laughs> I
1: think I'm gonna hold on to two this weeks stuff.
0: after the burglary. Yeah. Two weeks after the burglary, Miss Metzger wrote the first article based on the files. Um, other organiz- news organizations, as you mentioned, uh, that had received the documents, including the New York Times, followed with their own reports. Mm. How brave. Uh, Ms. Metzger's article-, article highlighted a 1970 memorandum that offered a glimpse into Hoover's obsession with snuffing out dissent. The document urged agents to step up their interviews of anti-war activists and members of dissent- dissident groups um, it will enhance the paranoia uh, endemic in these circles, and will further serve to get the point across that the F- there's an FBI agent behind every mailbox. So they were trying to incite just complete paranoia within these groups of dissenters that would, you know, lead them to believe that they were, they should fear that they're going to be arrested at any given moment. That there's FBI agents everywhere. Mm-hmm. That the person you're talking to at this at this uh protest, you know, you don't know if they they started to not trust each other, you know, everyone that was going to these protests and stuff because they didn't know who was an FBI agent and who wasn't. That was their goal. Oh, yeah. Was to incite that yeah, kind of fear. Mental
1: warfare right there. Mm-hmm. That's that's tough to battle. What what the hell are you supposed yeah, to do? Yeah, and they
0: were trying to and they were even getting to um professors at colleges and trying to get them to report on any uh any kind of like Uh, Students who had extreme political views, they wanted them to uh, basically let them know and give them their names and things like that. Yeah, and another document signed by Hoover.
1: Say they also to compound on the college professor thing. They also wanted these college professors to basically condemn the new left. Is what they were calling it, the new left. Mm -hmm. These new uh, liberals, I guess, that were coming on the scene at the time. They were they were actually wanting them to teach against them or teach against those practices. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the message. Yeah, the FBI. Was. That's, I
0: don't know if that that's their place. That's kind of not their concern. It <laughs> yeah, shouldn't no be. Shit.
1: Least. But I'm wondering, like, how they were like, were were these like implied threats? Like, you need to be teaching like this. We're watching you, or mm-hmm. or were they just suggestions made by anonymous letter writers? You know, concerned parents, if you will, or something like that. Yeah,
0: that they would like to do yeah. that. They they were doing the same thing to Martin Luther King. Sending his wife anonymous letters, basically telling him to kill himself. Um, that was that was exposed as well. Yes. Pretty pretty crazy. Yep.
1: And they gave him a timeline. They told him he had 34 days to kill himself. Yeah, because that was when
0: he was going to get the Nobel Peace right. Prize. And they before he did before he got that received
1: that prize, they
0: wanted him to. They didn't say it directly in these anonymous letters, but they were saying, you know, you know what to do, yeah. Dr. King. You know what to yep. do. Another document signed by Hoover himself revealed widespread FBI surveillance of black co- uh, black student groups on college campuses, and the FBI had up to 200 agents working on this case. Once they had been exposed, once when you know the, this got even more crazy as far as like the, the FBI's heat trying to find whoever had done this heist because once once the records were exposed, it was like they were caught with their pants down, and now they they the only thing the only way they could get power back is to capture this group. And punish them with the full extent of the law so they could get some sort of you know respect back, right, I guess. Yeah. And fear. At least make an example out of them so that no one else would try to do this again.
1: Right. right. Exactly. They wanted yeah, they wanted a, they wanted revenge. And like you said, they wanted yeah, to. Yeah, but they that didn't get that fear.
0: satisfaction. The the group was never caught, no matter how many people they interviewed, no matter how many people they grilled to try and give get information. Uh, you know they they had lists of people that they were sure and this was that th- these were members of the group and most of them were not they only actually had one member of the group was on their lists one member and they weren't able to get him they did interview him and they he didn't give up anything <laughs> it was a real squirrely dude i don't remember his yeah. name but uh bob i think that's why cuz he just he looked like he he was not he, he was not uh very bashful about his he was he was in like every group that did this stuff yeah <laughs> he yeah was,
1: yeah he was He was a wild one. I think that his name was Bob, Bob something, Bob Williamson. Bob Bob was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. He had a crazy life. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, So, yeah, the document that would have the biggest impact on the reigning of the FBI's domestic spying activities was an internal routing slip dated 1968 bearing a mysterious word COINTELPRO. And initially, you know, the media didn't really know what to make of it. They didn't read too much into that word, COINTELPRO. Mm -hmm. Um, Neither neither the media burglars nor the reporters who received the documents understood the meaning of the term, and it was not until several years later when NBC News reporter Carl Stern obtained more files from the FBI under the Freedom of Information Act that the details of COINTELPRO shorthand for counterintelligence program were revealed. Since 1956, the FBI had carried out an expansive campaign to spy on civil rights leaders, political organizers, and suspected communists, And had tried to slow distrust among protest groups. Oh, to sow distrust among protest groups. So they were they were trying to divide and conquer. Essentially, these these protest groups.
1: What everyone suspects that they're doing, you know, Mm -hmm. still happening, still happening now. You see those crazy accounts on Instagram where if you if you see this if you see any people in your feed that's just constantly posting like extremely divisive stuff, check that shit out because it's probably. I don't know. It might be a Russian account. Might be a Russian bot, right? Or, or an FBI agent. I feel like that's how they're infiltrating us now. I mean, I think it is part of the
0: FBI's job to keep an eye on on all political politically uh, motivated groups, but not to throw gas on the protesters, things like that. Yeah, to know what's going on, to keep an eye on them, but to to infiltrate and try to divide and to try and. uh, and, and really to agitate and make them, make, their, make them look like their groups are doing things that they're not when it was their own um, agents doing yeah. these things.
1: Yeah, that's fucked up.
0: Yeah. Um, so, among the details was a blackmail letter FBI agents had sent anonymously to the Reverend Dr. Moon, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, threatening to expose his extramarital affairs if he did not commit suicide. Quote, it wasn't just spying on Americans," said Locke K. Johnson, then uh, then professor of public and internal international affairs at the University of Georgia. The intent of COINTELPRO was to destroy lives and ruin reputations. So they, they, basically, the whole point is they were going beyond their scope of what they were allowed to do, and, and they were doing it with immunity for way too long, and they needed to be exposed. And and that's what happened because it just they were their power was unchecked for far too long, and they were they were going beyond what our Constitution allows them to do.
1: Absolutely. This had to be done. And if it wasn't them, it would have been somebody else. You know, it Mm -hmm. was building up to that point. And the longer it would have went, the more confident the FBI would have gotten. I mean, look at that. Look at this shit that they were keeping in that little tiny office in media in Media, Pennsylvania. That's right. in, it's
0: insane. Yeah, it makes you wonder what was at the main office in, in Philadelphia, yeah, right?
1: it does. <laughs> a lot.
0: <laughs> They're keeping this shit oh in cabinets. those little file cabinets in an apartment building.
1: Right. You're, you're keeping the fact that you tried to get Martin Luther King to commit suicide in, a, in an apartment building in Media, Pennsylvania. But, of course, maybe that is the whole plan. Maybe that is where they keep the most important documents is in the small places.
0: Hmm. Yeah, if that's so, then at least put the documents in a safe or something within the, the, the office. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Instead of just in a normal file cabinet with no lock on it. Well, I'm sure they figured that out by now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is definitely... There yeah, There was a lot of changes made following <laughs> oh, this. <yeah. laughs> All right. Yeah. So, um, Senator Church's investigation in the mid-1970s in 1975 revealed still more about the extent of the decades of FBI abuse and led to greater congressional oversight of the FBI and other American intelligence uh, agencies. That's all. You just need some oversight. You know, you just can't do whatever you want. Like The CIA, CIA had been running rampant with their crazy programs as well for a long time mm-hmm. through the 60s and 70s. Right. Experimenting on people unknowingly, doing all kinds of shit like that.
1: Yeah. So there's got to be checks and balances for everything, man.
0: Yeah. You got to work within the laws and within the Constitution. So the church committee's final report about domestic surveillance was blunt. Quote, too many people have been spied upon by too many government agencies and too much information has been collected. By the time the committee released its report, uh, J. Edgar Hoover was dead and the empire he had built at the FBI was steadily being dismantled. Uh, Now, obviously, it's still around today and and still plays a major role. Um, in, in the U.S., um, the, the roughly 200 agents he had assigned to investigate the media burglary came back empty-handed, and the FBI closed the case on March 11th, 1976, three days after the statute of limitations for burglary charges had expired. And so the group had ostensibly That's gotten away with it. that that many
1: people um, got away with such a high-profile crime when 200 agents were assigned to investigate it. <laughs> I know, right? Maybe, maybe if
0: they had... Uh, Uh, Spent less time investigating, you know, hippies and uh, trying to infiltrate and break apart their peace movements and stuff. They'd have been a little bit better at investigating true crimes, you know, real things that real burglaries and stuff that've been going on.
1: Is you narrowed it down to the to the Philadelphia area and you still couldn't find them. It's not like they were going all over (laughs) the the U.S. Even they were just in Philly. Yeah, I mean
0: without members of the group talking which they kind of went their separate ways and stayed and just went back to their normal lives yeah. you know um, without them talking they had nothing because they were very careful they work gloves throughout the whole entire process uh, they got close with the xerox yes, machine that's actually. how they narrowed
1: it down to the area. Um,
0: so the group yeah they 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 didn't realize that there was like a fingerprint to each xerox machine that could lead you back to they could find out which which xerox machine uh, had printed out the copies that they had mm-hmm. sent to the reporters, and they
1: got very close to catching them with that, but they didn't quite, quite get them. Didn't they? Uh, didn't they alter like the drum or something on the uh, Xerox machine? Apparently, there was a way to like, yeah, because Did they? one of the guys worked at a place, and his Xerox machines got tested first, and then they he knew that they were going to be headed mm-hmm. to the other branch where the Xerox machine that they actually used was at. So he called his friend there, and oh, yes, they got a tip off. Well, I mean, they came to one of their one of the guys' works, so he saw them there. Yeah. So yeah, they tipped him off, and then I think they uh, scarred up that drum of the other Xerox machine, and that's how. So they actually had to take some action there, or they would have been able to narrow it down to that exact building. Then it would have got real intense. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah. But they did note. Before they even uh, started searching Xerox machines in that area, they knew from Xerox Corporation that that it was sold in the Philadelphia area. So that's how mm-hmm. that's how they knew to narrow it down there.
0: Yeah. So yeah, they came close with the Xeroxes, but didn't they would, never did catch them. Um, and with these these events that had taken place and with the new exposure that the FBI's corruption had been given now, uh, Michael P. Corton... A spokesperson for the FBI said that, quote, a number of events during that era, including the media burglary, contributed to changes how the FBI identified and addressed domestic security threats leading to the reform of the FBI's intelligence policies and practices and creation of investigative guidelines by the Department of Justice. So yeah, the the DOJ, which oversees the FBI, weren't doing enough. And that changed following this. And they they just needed more guidance. They need more guidelines from the DOJ. Um so f- following the church, the church committee hearings there seems to have been a loosening of intelligence agencies spying on in- and interventions in activism for a while. They had a nice yeah. run, I think. They laid um, off for a little you while. You know, uh, from 1975 um all the way up until 2001 there was a much uh much uh, looser grip as far as the surveillance of the general right. public and the intervention in um political groups and things like that until 9 right, and then we had the patriot act signed by george bush which gave those agencies you know greater power once again and that's where you see like edward snowden and julian assange come out and whistleblow about all of the uh pervace, um, spying on the american citizens that right. had been going on again through the 2000s so uh, to wrap this thing up in 2014, several of the members decided to end their silence, thanks to a book called *The Burglary*, written by Betty Metzger, the former reporter from the Washington Post, the the woman with brass balls who decided to, you know, actually do something with these files right. that were given to her. Um, she spent years sifting through the FBI's case file and persuaded five of the eight men and women who participated in the break-in to end their silence. I think she was. If, I, if, not, if I'm not mistaken, she spent the, you know, the latter years of her life um, after retiring from like, you know, working for yeah. the newspaper and stuff uh, to write this book. And she started sitting down with and interviewing people that she might, they were activists during the time. And I think the, I want to say the Rainies, she sat down with them to interview and she didn't know that they were members. And they basically told her like, look, we were the members. And then they they gave her you know the names of the other activists, and she could contact them. And oh, I think okay. that's where I it went what from. Saying, if I'm so not mistaken. she just
1: had them on a list, just because she knew that they were active at the time, being or being social uh, civil rights activists.
0: Yeah, I could be off on that, but yeah, it basically she she found out by accident, uh, if you will, or they they just came clean to right. her. They were like, "Man, yeah, what better so, time
1: than now?" Right. It's kind of like a little yeah. reunion.
0: <laughs> yeah, so she got them to end their silence. And that's that's where a lot of this information has come from. John and Bonnie Raines say that they know some people will criticize them for taking part in something like that. If they had been caught and convicted, might have, uh, it might have separated them from their children um, for most of their lives. But they insist they would never have joined the team of burglars had they not been convinced that they would get away with it. Quote, it looks like we were terribly reckless people, Mr. Raines said. Uh, but there was absolutely no one in Washington, senators, congressmen, even the president, who dared hold j edgar hoover to accountability it became pretty obvious to us he said that if we don't do it nobody will that's yeah. that says it perfectly like like we said everybody was so afraid of the fbi at that time j edgar hoover had this this uh um, unchecked power and he was abusing it and it yeah, needed to be exposed so they felt like they felt this strong responsibility to do it even if it meant
1: uh putting their you know their lives right. on the you line. Saw it to do as so reckless if they did it, and they saw it as careless if they didn't. And that was, you know, to them that seemed like a bigger crime. It's like you're just being apathetic. You're you're mm-hmm. talking all their life's work up until this point would be would have been for nothing. You know, all all the marching, all the civil rights work, and all that stuff, and then you're gonna and then you're gonna just let this slide. You have a chance to to make the biggest impact. You know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Keith, Keith Forsyth said it best. He said, quote, when you talk to people outside the movement about what the FBI was doing, nobody wanted to believe it. There was only one way to convince people that it was true, and that was to get it in their handwriting. So to get the, hard, the cold, hard proof, their written files. There was no way, of, no way yeah. around it. Um, if you got your hands on those That's files it. and exposed them, uh, much like many uh, modern-day whistleblowers have done, and then they can't backpedal there's not much they can say They That's just right. have to come clean
1: so man keith foresight man like we said the, he was the lock pick change. right oh. yeah man he had some balls yeah, still as well you know he probably he probably wish he had some old oh my guy in there while he was pushing that door open man you know you know he was sweating in that <laughs> suit yeah you know he was sweating when he was pushing uh fucking cracking those locks he had had some old oh my guy it have been a lot better <laughs> Oh My is an innovative, all-natural deodorant, fragrance, and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while maintaining effectiveness. At Oh My they use only all-natural, paraben and aluminum-free organic ingredients. Guys, there's tons of scents to choose from at Oh My Gaia, and there's probably new scents that I'm not even mentioning in this ad on the website right now. But a few are vanilla, cherry almond, sandalwood, lavender, lemongrass, Egyptian musk, coconut, sickle, leather, lumberjack, honeysuckle, fireside, uh, bergamot, amber, Idaho, pear, and we have our very own scent called True Crime Pine that has our old school podcast logo on there, the very first one we started with, the old mugshots logo. It's a decidedly unisex scent, and if you don't know what to get, maybe that's a great place to start. And maybe uh, they could send you a few samples of some things that you could try in the future. But because you guys are True Crime Guys listeners, you can use the word creeper for 15% off. That's C-R-E-E-P-E-R for 15% off your order. At shop underscore ohmygaia on Instagram, or at ohmygaia.com. ohmygai O H M Y G A I A. .com. Do it, guys. Won't regret it. Do it. We actually got an email uh, from a listener yep. today talking about how much they loved Oh My Gaia and how they could not believe they waited so long. And we was like, We've been telling you. We've been telling you for mm-hmm. a while.
0: Mm-hmm. Four years. For four years now. You've been walking right. around with them sticky pits, right. <laughs> not believing us.
1: And you could have a jar of Oh My Gaia on your dresser to freshen yourself up every morning, mm-hmm. not put aluminum in your pits. Mm, it's a shame mm. alright well I want to
0: give a, a thank, a thanks and a quick shout out to those of you that have gone and rated and reviewed the show this past week uh, we got Kirby in the United States said love it five stars love the show guys also love the banter it has become my favorite podcast and we got Clyde, Clyde's mm-hmm. Bond in the US said addicted five stars love this podcast easy and yeah, fun to you. listen to all day thank you we got Chassis baby in Canada said five stars. Hey guys, love your podcast. L- listening to dear Zachary, wanted to let you know how to say Newfoundland. You say it like understand. Also, this case devastated our province. Mm. Yes. Uh, you say it like understand. Understand. New- Newfoundland. You say it like Newfoundland, right? You say it like, like understand. Newf- I
1: don't know what you mean. Newfoundland. Isn't Newfer- it Newfoundland? I thought it was Newfoundland. It's not. How understand. It. How's that sound? That doesn't sound like it at all. <laughs> I'm joking yeah <clears throat> whatever we're done
0: uh then we got cammy house in canada said hey five stars guys what's up Cami right here on? from sylvan lake ab uh, alberta canada <laughs> whoop whoop love the podcast you guys kill me with your humor one episode a week is definitely not enough for me you're one of my faves keep doing what you're doing peace thank you all for for taking the time to do that we do appreciate it um it, it keeps us motivated seeing that you guys are still loving the show out there so yeah, absolutely. if you haven't done that, go and rate and review. Even if you don't want to write anything, just put in five, click five stars, and uh, put some fire emojis or something. You have to write something in the details section so that we can actually give you a shout out. Otherwise, right. it just shows up as a as a number instead of an actual review. But we appreciate that as well. You're not just a number to us. No, neither are the patrons. The patrons. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, over at patreoncom slash guys uh we enjoy you guys so much we've been enjoying all of your questions and topics to talk about on just the banter the show that we do once a week uh yes, just for patron Friday. members five dollars and up two bucks a month gets you access to all of our premium episodes the once a month episode that's not on the main feed that's just mm-hmm. for patrons two bucks a month gets you access to that um and five bucks a month and up gets you just the banter and a very prestigious gold creep band sticker So if you can't get enough of our show, go over there to patreon.com slash guys, Throw us a few bucks and you get a ton of stuff, man. There's hundreds of episodes and recordings on there. So much stuff.
1: We probably have as much on Patreon, if not more, than on the free platform now. I
0: think so, Um, yeah. Between all the different shows you've done on there, um, your whole Higher Thoughts series is on there. Right, and and then with just the banter. Just the Banter, all of our premium two- to three-hour uh, heavy hitter episodes, the biggest name, Serial Killers, all of
1: that is on there. Yes. Um, so, yeah. There's, there's an extensive catalog on there, guys, so make sure you mm-hmm. check that out. Uh, yep. And if you already have and you're all caught up, we have a whole other show for you, Strange and Unexplained, wherever you listen. Uh, True Crime Guys presents Strange and Unexplained, if you will. Uh, there's, there there's might be some confusion out there when you type it into your podcast uh, player. You'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. But either way... Uh, it's the one that looks like our logo. We we needed it was time for a branding change so people don't get confused. But uh, strange and unexplained. If you guys type "true crime guys" into your podcast player, it should come up. It's where we focus on unsolved missing persons and just strange cases. Um, I break down the case for you, give you the facts, give you a little speculation, and Lauren likes to come in at the end with his version of the story as well. And then you know we get to compare, and you also get multiple takes of the story So strange and unexplained, guys. Wherever you listen.
0: All right, all right. Does that do it? Everything is down in the bottom of the episode in the description. All the links to our merch, um, our sources. Uh, There was a great New York Times article for this case that we used. um, we paired that along with the uh, the documentary 1971. So yeah, check out our sources down there at the bottom if you want to know more about this case, Um, and all of our merch and sponsors, whatever else is down there. Um, Anything you want. So.
1: Patreon as well.
0: Yep, yep, links to everything down there. And uh, that about does it. We'll see you guys next week. Yep. Keep creeping. Fitter,
1: true crime,
2: guys. In the desert, we
1: like a verge. It's okay if you clicked on us because you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk. at you. I'm talking to the Creeper Army. We out here making murder. Get murder. Get murder. True crime, guys. In the desert, we like a verge. It's okay if you clicked on us cause you thought we was True Crime Garage. Now we ain't mad at you, sit down let us talk at you. I'm talking to the creeper army, we out here, make it better charming.